Take your Bibles and turn with me to the fourth chapter of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Not revelations, revelation. One revelation, one truth being shown forth there in that particular book by the Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle John. There's a lot we could talk about in this book. There's a lot that we could argue about in this book. There's a lot we could debate over in this book. But one thing is for sure, we can never deny that this book gives us a beautiful picture of heaven. And probably the best picture of heaven in all the scripture. Uh, it probably tells us, no probably about it, it tells us more about what we will be doing in heaven than, uh, than any other place in the Bible or any other place in God's revelation. I've always been amazed at people when they talk about heaven. I don't know about you, but... I've heard preachers preach sermons. I've got one in my files somewhere. I've got to find that. It's on tape. I've got to find it because it makes some great illustrations of just absolute absurdity. But he, he preached on uh, a, a guy that I know in Alabama, one of the large churches there, and he preached several Easter's ago about his vision of heaven. And, I mean, it started out in unbelievable ways I won't even go into, but it, it sort of ended with this beautiful colonial home that he'd always dreamed of was what God had prepared for him and out back were chocolate Sunday trees where he could just go out and pick a chocolate Sunday when he wanted it because that was his view of heaven and and I and I it went on I mean it, that was the good part uh, the the I mean it got worse from there the whole thing was just an absolute apocryphal view of heaven had no no basis no grounding in scripture the whole pe uh, essence of the sermon was that in his view, heaven was all about him. Heaven was all about what he could get. Heaven was all about what he would like. Heaven was all about what he liked on earth being transformed and transmitted into heaven, but not just transmitted, transmitted on steroids. I mean, it was everything he loved and liked and wanted magnified millions and millions of times. Well, the Scripture doesn't tell us heaven's all about us. The scripture doesn't tell us that heaven is a place where we're going to have all of our carnal desires here on earth fulfilled, all of our appetites filled on earth. As a matter of fact, the interesting thing about the scripture is heaven tells us that worship is going to be the central employment of heaven. That's going to be our occupation. That's going to be what we are occupied with, not just eight hours a day or not just five days a week, but what we are going to be occupied with and focused on and hear this, enjoying for all of eternity. I tell people all the time, if you don't enjoy worship, if you are preoccupied in worship by other things and you just think worship is that thing you've got to go through and got to get over with and you don't enjoy worship, I keep telling them, man, you're not going to like heaven one bit because that's what heaven's going to be all about. It's going to be all about focusing on the one who sits on the throne and giving him honor and praise and glory and adoration and looking at him and gazing upon him for all of eternity. I mean, that's going to be the, the focus of heaven, which John saw in Revelation chapter 4 when he got there in this vision, when God caught him up and said, I want you to see what's here. I want you to look what's going on in the heavenly places. Follow along as I read chapter 4 of Revelation, and I'll try to tie it in with why I wanted Todd to read Nehemiah 1 in just a little bit, and hope you see that. Chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. 
Now after these things, after these things are the seven letters to the seven churches that Jesus literally dictates to the Apostle John. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me. And it said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now, now visualize that, folks. Get a vision of that because that's important. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had the face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings. Does that sound familiar? Think back to our message on Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim around the throne, each with six wings. Each one of them had six wings and are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. The same song, the same words that were spoken in the vision of Isaiah, of God on His throne in Isaiah chapter 6. So we get an idea here that John is getting something of the same vision that Isaiah got just a glimpse of in the temple, except John perhaps is seeing it in a greater splendor, in a greater majesty than, than even Isaiah saw. But he hears the same words. And verse 9, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Stop there. We could go on in chapter 5 because that continues this vision of John's and what he saw in heaven and the worship that he just sees compounded over and over again. But I think chapter 4 will suffice for what I want us to talk about this morning. We've been talking about the importance of worship for about seven weeks now. We've been talking about where our focus is to be, what our attention is to be. We've been talking about how you can't be distracted when you come into worship. You don't need to have you know, other things you're thinking about. You don't need to bring other reading material that you can read along with and listen to the sermon with one ear and read with You can't do that. Worship is not a, a bilingual thing. Worship is a monolingual thing where you look upon the face of God and you see only the face and the goodness and the glory and the word of Almighty God. That's important. And that's what you see here. But I want you to see something of what John saw and what John heard. Because the symbolism here is phenomenal to get an understanding and a grasp 
of what God is all about and what heaven is all about. First, I want you to see the sight, the vision that John saw. It's significant that John is brought into the presence of God, and yet he doesn't, he doesn't use human terms to describe him. Have you noticed that? Did you notice that? He, he doesn't say, wow, there he was with a long white beard and a scepter in one hand, and a, and a throne that he sat upon, and with one hand he kind of directed the traffic of the universe, and somehow he, he looked, he, he had eyes that just were glistening eyes of, he didn't use human terms to describe God. I think that's significant in what Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, 25, when God is speaking through Isaiah, and he says, To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. To whom will you liken me? Not to what will you liken me, but, but to whom? Is there another, you know, could John have said, you know, I saw Nero one time. I saw Nero sitting on his throne with all of the, all of the majesty that surrounded the king. And, and I, I think God must be a lot like that. No, you cannot liken God to any person. You can't say, well, I saw Queen Elizabeth one time. In all of her regalia, in all of her, her robes and her diamond-studded crown and her, her diamond-tipped scepter. And man, it was just amazing. Surely God must look something like that. No, there is no man, no woman, no human being in any terms that you can ever compare to God. Because God is greater than all in every respect. So John sets out to describe God using the language of precious stones. It's kind of interesting, if you think about it. In verse 3, he says, He who was sitting was like a jasper stone. What in the world is a jasper stone? Well, a jasper stone is, is a rather transparent stone, somewhat like a diamond, not at all unlike a diamond. However, when it is viewed from different angles and in different lights, it gives off a variety of vivid and bright colors. The jasper stone, I think here in John's vision, talking about God in light of that, uh, signifies the glorious and infinite perfection of God, and especially the purity and dazzling brightness of His holiness. Remember those creatures around the throne are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. In, in Isaiah 6, when, when Isaiah saw the vision of God, he said, Boy, there is the holiness of God. There is the holy God who sits on His throne. Well, here, the, the, uh, the idea of the jasper stone, this transparent, reflective, beautiful, vivid, light and color stone, signifies the dazzling brightness of God's holiness. That was John's way of saying this one who sits on the throne is a holy, holy, holy God. Then he goes on. He says not only is it like Jasper, though, it's also like Sardis. Like Sardis in appearance. Sardis is also called the sardine stone for some reason. And basically it's because this stone is a stone that is blood red in color. It's, it's, the jasper is transparent, light, reflecting light like a diamond. The sardis stone is blood red. It literally symbolizes and signifies the inflexibility and uncompromising character of God's justice. God who sits on His throne is a just God. 
He is a God who views life through perfection and views us through the eyes of his perfection. He is a just God. And the blood redness of that stone also carries that justice a step further to talk about the fierceness of his wrath. Do you understand that God is a wrathful God as well as a God of love? I mean, God hates sin. God literally, passionately, with all of his holiness, hates sin. And this... This, this sardine stone or sardis stone signifies that, that he is, just, he is justice and he is wrath to the, to the perfect degree. Then it talks about a rainbow. He says also there was a rainbow around the throne. But now this wasn't like just any rainbow. He said this was a rainbow and it was like an emerald in appearance. Now an emerald in appearance is is green, dark, rich green. The, our idea of a rainbow out here is a rainbow that's multicolored. It has all the primary colors of the spectrum in it because of the way the sun reflects through the clouds and the, and the rain, and, and you've had that in science class, and it brings out this beautiful rainbow with all the primary colors. This rainbow's not a normal rainbow. It's a rainbow that looks like an emerald, resembles an emerald. The rainbow in Scripture from the time of the flood... And the days after the flood, when, when God spoke to Noah and said, This is my sign of my covenant, the rainbow has always spoken of God's covenant with His people since the very days of Noah. So the rainbow signifies God's covenant mercy, His grace, and His love for His people. So you've got the jasper stone reflecting his holiness. You've got the sardis stone talking about his justice and his wrath. And now you've got this emerald rainbow, this beautiful rainbow around the throne of God that speaks of his covenant of mercy and grace and love to his people. Now think about that. The holiness of God, the righteousness and the justice of God, the wrath of God, and the, and the covenant of God to his people. Why, in that picture of the throne of God, if you take these precious stones together, they add up to what is, in effect, a summary of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That God's holiness, His hatred of sin, and the judgment that the sinner is under because of that sin, but then you see His grace and His mercy and His love as seen in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. You, you'll never understand the gospel until you see God's holiness and his hatred of sin and the fact that you are a sinner and in need of something that you cannot do for yourself, something that is outside of you, something that will do something for you, and that's the mercy and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So it's amazing that John, while he's surrounding the throne, while he's looking upon the throne, and he describes what God, what he sees God as, not as a human being, but as these precious stones, he brings to us a culmination. He brings to us a vision of the gospel. Because you see, God is the gospel. God is the gospel. You, you don't have a gospel apart from him. You don't have a gospel apart from his work. 
You don't have a gospel apart from his initiation. You don't have a gospel apart from his application. You don't have a gospel apart from his glorification. I mean, God is the gospel. And so when John looks there and sees God, he sees in all its glory and in all its splendor the gospel through God, the gospel of God. And he describes God in relation to the gospel that he knows experientially by his relationship with Jesus Christ. See, when we understand the gospel, we can really see God. Hear what I'm saying. I don't necessarily mean with these two eyes. I don't mean with these two eyes. You can't gaze upon him and live. You can't see him with your physical self and live. But when we understand the gospel, and you know, I'm so grateful that I really believe there is a resurgence of understanding of the gospel in our day. We went through a time in our nation, and even in the church, we went through a time when the gospel was, was sort of symbolized by positive thinking. We went through a time when the gospel was kind of a pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If it's to be, it's up to me, and, and doing it yourself. But we're coming back to an understanding that the gospel is God. God is the gospel. It's centered in Christ. It's centered in His work. It's not in us. And it's not for us primarily. We benefit from it. Praise God. We benefit from worship. Praise God. But worship is not about us. Worship is about Him and seeing Him with spiritual eyes and spiritual understanding as we see the gospel. And bowing before bowing in His presence and acknowledging Him for who He is. God is visualized by John in symbols of stone that give us the gospel. Then in verse 4, John goes on to say, And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and, crowns, and golden crowns on their heads. What in the world do these thrones represent? Well, the key's in the number, 24. In the Old Testament, how many tribes of Israel did you have? Twelve. In the New Testament, the foundation of the church is the apostles. How many apostles did you have? Twelve. Some would argue 13, but biblically, you only have 12. So, 12 plus 12, I don't want to give you any high math here, so don't get stumbled over the math, but 12 plus 12 is what? 24. What John is seeing here, I think, is God is revealing to him is that these 24 elders stand symbolically and representative of the whole church of God throughout all of history. The whole church of, the whole church of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament and beyond. And they're dressed in white. White robes. How fitting. They're clothed in white garments. Dressed in white just simply means they are thoroughly and completely sanctified, glorified, perfect, without sin. They are what we are in position, but not in practice in this life. In practice, our lives are still stained by sin. We still struggle with sin. We still wrestle with sin every single day. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, Man, I find myself doing the things I know I ought not do and not doing the things I know I ought to do. What a wretched man I am. How I struggle with this. But one day, thanks be to God, I will have all of that taken away. And that's what's happening here. They got on the white robes. 
They've been perfectly cleansed and perfectly cleaned. They've been perfectly sanctified in the presence of God. Sanctified thoroughly at last. The golden crowns, which ultimately will be taken off and thrown at the feet of Christ, we realize. But the golden crowns confirm that we're victorious. We are more than conquerors, Paul, uh, John will say in this same book a little later on. And Paul says in his epistles, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. We aren't conquerors. We aren't able to conquer. We aren't able to overcome ourselves. But through Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors. We are victorious. And so these, these 24 elders, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, all represent the church of God throughout all of history and beyond. What are they doing? Well, they're surrounding the throne. They're, if you will, they are there representative of us who are on the apostle side, on the New Testament side. We are not there yet, but we are part of the, the universal church, and they're there as, as representatives of us on the thrones, around the major throne. And then in verses 5 and 6, he describes this. He says, and from the throne, the throne, the, the central throne, come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Don't let that throw you off. It's just talking about the perfection of God's Holy Spirit. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Sounds of lightning, flashing, and are, are simply reference to the Holy Spirit that goes out from the throne of God to accomplish the work of God. The seven spirits of God are just talking about His perfection and the work that He goes out to accomplish. It will not fail. Along with that, it looked like a sea of glass, like crystal. Add this to the overall picture of, jar, uh, uh, of Sardis and Jasper and the rainbow like an emerald, and now the glass-like crystal around the throne of God. It simply adds to this all-awe-inspiring picture of God. This awe-inspiring magnificence of God. You, you see John looking at that, and he is just mesmerized by, by who God is, and, and what God is, and the glory of God. And he's, he's awed by it. He stands in awe. I mean, he says, wow. Wow. I mean, that's about as deep a word as sometimes we can get. But that's what we mean when we see the glory of God. When we see that it's not about us, it's about Him. When we come in worship, through our singing and through the reading of Scripture and through praying and through the study of His Word, when we come just to literally, spiritually gaze upon the face of God, we say, wow! How magnificent is that? How glory-filled is that? How awful, awe-filled is that? So we look into His face. We see his magnificence. And he describes these creatures that are circling around these seraphim. He says, man, they, one looked like a lion. One looked like a calf. The third was like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. I mean, wouldn't you love to see that? He was just so caught up in it. He, 
it signified everything of creation. Flying things, beast of the field, the king of the jungle, the, the, cre- the, the crowning creation of man. They're all, it's all, it's kind of like saying God is supreme in every dimension that we know of on this earth. They had eyes around and within. And then John heard something. He saw all this. Understand, he was captivated by the sight. That sense was just on overdrive as he, as he looked upon the throne of God and just went, wow. Then he heard something. He heard these creatures, first of all, saying, doesn't say they sang it, says they said it. They did not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Again, they speak of His holiness and they speak of His, of his eternal nature. He is the one who was and who, is, who is, was and who is and who is to come. He goes to eternity past. He goes to eternity future. With God there is no beginning. There is no end. God is the great I Am. He just always has been. Always. Go home tonight or this afternoon and think about that. Just sit down and think about it. God has always been. He doesn't have a beginning. Everything has a beginning. You began, I began almost 58 years ago when I was born in January of 1951. That was my beginning. Save the Lord coming again, I will have an ending. There will be some time when, when probably I'll lay right here well, maybe we will over on Oak Leaf Lane by then, but, but I'll lay right here, and, or at least it'll look like I'm laying there. I'm really not laying there. It's a, it's a body, it's a shell, it's a tent that has been discarded. And I've gone on to be a part of this singing and praising and saying in heaven. But I have a beginning, I have an ending. You have a beginning, you have an ending. There's no way around that in the cycle that we call life. It just happens. But with God, there's no beginning, there's no ending, there's no hiccups, there's no stumbles, there's only absolute perfection. And, and that's, what the, that's what the seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. You know, you ought to take that little verse, and I'm serious about this, you ought to, this week, Every night before you go to bed, just read that verse. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And then just thank Him for that. And maybe when you get up in the morning, start the day out with that. We can do it morning and night. We're just getting really overdrive here. You know, Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. I think you can memorize that. Let's make that our memory verse this week, Scott. Can we do that? Yeah. I think we can memorize that fairly easily and just use it. And maybe even during the day when, when things are really going tough. I mean, when, when, when the boss is on your case or the teacher has given you a D or an F or thrown you out of the class because you were taught, I mean, whatever it is, you know, just say, okay, that's good, that's all right, because holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. This is all temporal. 
and he is eternal. His holiness, his eternal nature. Oh, but then, along with the living creatures, as they give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the 24 elders join in. And they say, they fall down before Him who sits on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns, those victorious crowns, those crowns that are a sign of victory. We say, hey, we're wearing the crown of victory, but the victory's not ours, it's His. So they take Him off, they throw Him at His feet. They say, you're the one who did that. And those creatures start saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and they were created. That's even us. We exist because of His will. What a glorious thing. You know, you say, well, no, I, I beg to differ there. My mom and dad decided they wanted to have a baby, and so... They willed me into existence. No, not at all. Why was it you and not somebody else? I mean, I don't want to get into the specifics here of, uh, of the birth process and all too deep. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, thousands and thousands, maybe even millions of, of potential babies pass through a mother's cycles. And... and Millions and millions of sperm pass through a man's cycles. And yet, it was that one and that one that came together at just the right time, just at perfection, and poof, there you were. Twarn't no accident, my friend. It was by the sovereign will of Almighty God. You're special because of that. You're special in the sense that you are a unique creation of Almighty God. Doesn't make you as equal. Doesn't make you worthy of worship. But you're special in the sense that you ought to be able to say, Man, Lord, thank you for, for giving me this. Could have looked a little better. <laughs> but thank you, Lord, for giving me life. Thank you. Because not only is He a holy God, not only is He eternal God, but He's also the absolute Creator God. Wow. The vision John saw and the, and the thing he heard, the song he heard, the seraphim. The elders. I do want to skip into chapter 5 just one brief second, and I'll try to be through. But see, this is, this is a really short worship service in compared to heaven. All right? So I want you to be sure you understand that. In verse 11 of chapter 5, he says, Then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain 
Jesus Christ, to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. Just write it one time, but they kept saying it. Amen, 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 amen. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Do you see that heaven's going to be a participatory worship service from beginning to end? Oops. Sorry about that. There is no end. It's going to be worshiping God. So, So worship on earth what we are privileged by Almighty God to come together once or twice a week or more. We are privileged by God to gather together as as the people of God and experience just a little taste of heaven. Just a little taste of heaven. Worship. Worship. Gazing into the face of God. Worship. Seeing Him in all of His splendor and all of His majestic nature. Seeing Him as the Lamb that was slain and giving Him glory and power and honor for all of eternity. We get to do that. We get to participate in that. We need to experience that when we walk with the Lord in His presence. Glorying only in His name. That really is what matters. Let's pray. Holy Father, Holy Father, let us see your face. Let us see you like a jasper stone, like a, like a sardis stone, like an emerald. Holy, just, gracious. Let us gaze upon the gospel and see the glory of God. Father, let us know let us walk out of this place and know not just we've sang some songs and listened to somebody speak for a while but let us know, Lord, that we've been in the presence of Almighty God as a body because of our relationship with Christ as individuals. Father, I pray this morning that you would show the gospel truth to men and women who maybe are here that need to hear it. 
that you are a holy God that will not tolerate sin and that there is sin in their life because of rebellion against you and disobedience to you. But Lord, there's a merciful Savior. And I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you would call them, draw them, bring them to that Savior this morning. Father, I pray you do your work in your way, in your time, and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing our hymn of commitment.